So several months before Jesus was crucified, in John chapter 10, he's talking with the disciples, and he's talking to them about him being the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he told them that he was going to do that as the good shepherd. He said, I will lay down my life only to take it up again. I have power to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. And I've received this command from my Father. So he's telling them, uh, I'm going to die, but death will not be the end. I have power to lay my life down, but I also have the authority, the power, to pick it up again. So early on the morning, first day of the first Easter, Mary ran to the tomb while it was still dark. There may have been as many as five women gone out there. Uh, you don't go to a cemetery in the dark by yourself, usually. Um, and they knew where to go because Friday, when Jesus had died, uh, they were trying to get him buried because the Sabbath day was the next day, and it was a special Sabbath because it was the Sabbath of the Passover. And they wanted to get him in the ground so that they wouldn't desecrate the Sabbath day. Pilate, willing to do them a favor, uh, granted them to take the bodies down. Especially when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked him for the body. These men were both members of the Jewish Sanhedrin Council. They were well-known, powerful, wealthy men, well-known to uh, Pontius Pilate. He gave them the body and... They were hurrying because they needed to get Jesus in the ground before sundown when the Sabbath would begin. So they brought some linen cloth. They wound him up in that with about 75 pounds of spices. And they hurriedly put him in the ground. Now the women were there. They had been there. Um, the disciples had fled, almost all of them. But they had been there at the cross. And they were there when they took the body down. And they were there when they put him in the tomb. They knew exactly where it was. And they were going to take special note of that because their plan was to come back Monday morning. And so they put him in there and they sealed the tomb. And uh, these stones are huge. They're big round things, um, about this thick. And they have a slot in front of the door that they rolled this thing in and it drops down in that slot and it's not going to open again very easily. So they knew because of their love and commitment to the Lord that they wanted to come back and finish the preparations of the body because they didn't have time to do that before. They didn't think ahead, I don't think, about how they're going to get the stone out of the way. I don't think all those women together could have budged the thing. So in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Matthew says that there had been a great earthquake, and an angel of the Lord came down and just rolled away the stone and sat on it. And they had a guard, and the tomb had been sealed, and they had a, a guard there to make sure that nobody tampered with it. And these men became like dead men. They were so terrified at the presence of this angel that they couldn't move. They couldn't do anything. They just froze where they were. 
So she comes, and as Angela said, she looked into the tomb, and the body was gone. Now Jesus told them, I have power to lay down my life, and I have power to pick it up again. They didn't think of that, because they had watched him die. A cruel, painful, shameful death that took a long time. And they had saw him buried in this tomb. And so that never was a concept that entered her mind. So she sees that the, the tomb is empty and she goes running. The other women went running back and they found Simon, Peter, and John. And notice what she says. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Somebody stole him. They took the body. We don't know where it is. Well, during that time where they were going and coming, um, the guards regained their senses and they ran in to tell the high priest and all the others that there had been an angel and Jesus wasn't there anymore. So Peter and John run to the tomb and when they get there, John got there first. He looked in and saw that it was empty, but he didn't go in. Uh, Peter comes, and Peter doesn't even hesitate. He just barges into it like he barges into everything in life. And he runs in there, and he looks around. And again, they're not thinking, because as the children told you, it wasn't a haphazard thing at all. Grave robbers don't stop and neatly fold the grave clouds and put them here and put these over. They don't do that. People coming to steal the body. If they were, had been the disciples, they don't do those things. But it's important that Peter and John were there because, according to Jewish law, testimony is only valid by two or more male witnesses. And so they had the two witnesses. And so their testimony is valid. It would be acceptable in the Jewish religious courts. So Peter and John look, and then they go home. Everybody went home, as a matter of fact, except for Mary. Mary stood at the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Now the tombs, uh, this one was by the garden because there was a garden close by where Jesus was crucified. And because time was short and it was close, and because the tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy man, because only the wealthy could afford tombs like this, it was a new tomb. Nobody had been buried in there before. And what you would do is there would be a, a low entrance about this tall. And in order to get in, you would have to bend down and walk through this entryway, and then it would be a larger uh, room. The new tombs would have benches around the edges. Later tombs, um, they would expand it, uh, build other rooms later on, and then they would build uh, niches in the wall that they would put the bodies in. But new tombs had these benches around this, the edge, and that's where they had laid Jesus, in this new tomb. So Mary's looking down in there one last time, um, and then she sees the angels there. Doesn't seem to surprise her. Um, she's not frightened by them, and she's weeping. And the angels sitting there they asked her, and notice the question, Woman, why are you crying? The point being, he's not dead. 
He is not here. He's alive. You don't have to cry and mourn anymore. The time of mourning is over. And as the psalmist says, our mourning is turned to gladness. But she wasn't there yet. And so she says, they say, why are you crying? And she says basically the same thing that she told Peter and John. They have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. So at this, she turns around, and there Jesus was, standing right behind her all the time. And she did not realize it was Jesus. Could be, as Angela said, she wasn't expecting. He's dead. She saw him die. She saw him put in the ground. And he's not there. So she's not looking for him. She's not expecting to find him. And in her grief and sorrow, um, she's not expecting to see Jesus. Jesus asked her the exact same question. Woman, why are you crying? Here I am. <laughs> why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? You're looking for somebody. Who are you looking for? She, thinking he was the gardener, says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. So she's still thinking that people are going to have to do something to move Jesus. Uh, they're going to have to... He, he's dependent upon me to come and get him, to go find him because he's lost. Uh, Somebody has stolen him away and they've hidden him and I've got to go find him. I need to, to bring him back here so that we can take care and give him the proper respect. But Jesus is far beyond any help from us. And he always has been. But she thinks he's the gardener. Well, it's early Monday morning. You're in a garden. Who else would be there early in the morning? The guy's coming to work, right? That's what she's thinking. This must be the gardener to take care of this garden. He's not the gardener. So who is the gardener? It's not Jesus. Who's the gardener? In John 15... He had already answered these questions. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So he says, close, but I'm not the gardener. Well, if Jesus isn't the gardener, who is he? What does a gardener do? In John 12, Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And because of that and the other miracles and the things that Jesus was doing, uh, he was getting a lot, of, a lot of notoriety. And especially because um, Lazarus just lived a few miles away from Jerusalem. And a lot of important people from Jerusalem had been there for the funeral for Lazarus. After he had been in the tomb for four days... 
Jesus raised him from the dead. Then briefly, right after that, a week later, is when Jesus had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And all of these people, because they were there for the festival, for the feast, getting ready for Passover, um, from all around the world were there. And they had heard rumors of this teacher. They had, uh, there were eyewitnesses to miracles. There were some people there who had been healed themselves. And the week before, uh, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. Lazarus and Mary and Martha were there. And so everybody was coming out. And all of these people and the little children, and they were waving the palm branches and singing Hosanna and all of that. And Jesus goes to the temple and cleanses it and goes through all of that. And so the Pharisees, they're just, they're wanting to get rid of Jesus anyway. And now in verse 19 of chapter 12, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look at him. The whole world has gone after him. Now earlier, way back in John chapter 7, as Jesus was talking um, with the disciples and they were trying to figure out who Jesus was and having a debate whether Jesus was the Christ or not. In verses 33 through 36, Jesus said, I'm only with you for a short time and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So they were thinking, because there were Jews of the diaspora since um, the return from the Babylonian captivity about five, six hundred years earlier, there were Jews scattered all over the empire. And there were converts, Jewish converts, and there were God-fearers, people who were Gentiles who didn't want to become Jews, but they, they were open to the teaching about one God and the ethical and moral standards. And so these people were scattered all over the place, and so they're asking, where does he say he's going to go? And we're going to look for him and can't find him. Maybe he's going to go to these scattered Greeks out in the rest of the empire, leave this place, because everybody knew that the Jewish officials were wanting to kill him. And so after this triumphal entry, they said, look, the whole world has gone after him. And it continues in John chapter 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is a border town, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. And so, what do you have here? Is it an open door for evangelism? Is it an opportunity to expand his ministry beyond just Jewish homeland? Or is it a temptation, a diversion, to keep him from his appointed hour? One of the temptations uh, throughout Jesus' life was to do things in a different way that would not require his death. If somebody was looking for you and you knew they were wanting to kill you and they were in a position of authority and power, what would you do? Get out of town. <laughs> and now the opportunity is there. You've got people in these outlying places. They want to know. They're open to your ministry. You have an easy out. And so they're asking Jesus, these Greeks, 
They want to talk with you. Immediately, John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So Mary, seeing Jesus, thinks that it's the gardener, but it's not the gardener. The gardener is the Father. So who is Jesus? What does a gardener do? He, the gardener plants seed. Who's Jesus? He's the seed. He's the kernel of wheat that's going to fall into the ground and die. And as a result of that death, there's going to be abundant life coming out from him. So Mary wasn't that far off, was she? She didn't know it at the time, but she was pretty close to the mark. The gardener was there, God the Father. Jesus was there, but he's the seed. Jesus went on and said, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. And he said, No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's the prayer he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but yours be done. So it was through his death that Jesus becomes the way of life to produce grain for us. So she says to him, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And so she's made this statement three times. They've taken him away, we don't know where they've put him. If you'll tell me where you put him, I'll go get him. If you'll, if you'll let me, I will go get him. Jesus said, I'm already here. And I'm not dead. He called her by name, and like the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, the sheep know the shepherd's voice. When I was a kid, still having to ask my dad for the car to go on dates and stuff, my dad would call every day before he came home uh, to let my mom know he was on the way so she'd know when to have supper ready by the time he got home. And I had an arrangement with my mother, if I wanted to use the car, that when the phone rang, because he called about the same time every day, I got to answer the phone. And when I picked up the phone and I said hello to my dad and he said hello, I knew whether I should ask him now or wait till later. <laughs> By his voice. I knew whether this is a good time or if I need to wait till after supper. So I knew my dad. I knew his voice and I could read it. And Jesus calls Mary by name, and she knows that voice. She knows what it means. And she turns around and she says, Rabbi, teacher. And he says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father, my God and your God. And she went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord.
They didn't believe her. So you have the struggle of the disciples to come to terms with who Jesus was. They were still looking for a dead Jesus, for one that you could control and manipulate, one that you would have to go get and that you could move from here to there, one that somebody could take away from you and hide someplace where you couldn't find him. But they're dealing with an entirely different Jesus now, one who's alive, whose power is greater than death, and who offers us new life and new hope. He is alive. And when he calls your name, like he called Mary's name, you'll know him. You'll know him that he's the one that you've been looking for and longing for and searching for your whole life. And when he calls your name, you know you've passed from death into life. That kernel that has been planted in the ground has risen. And there's not anything anybody does to make that happen. That's the nature of the seed. It's life in itself, just like Jesus said. Like God, the Father, Jesus said, I have life in myself, and I can give it to whoever I choose. At the moment he called Mary's name, she passed over from death into life, and she knew a life that would never end because of the presence of Jesus Christ. The good news today is that he has risen from the dead. The death he died, he died for you, and he died for me. And we can participate in that life, and he wants to impart that to us, and he has that authority and power. That's the reason that he came. Sin's cleansed and forgiven. The power and the hold that that sin has on our life broken. And we can go forth with new life and new hope because Jesus is alive. And he told the disciples, because I live, you will live also. Let's pray. So Lord, we come to you today with joy and thanksgiving. And we pray that like Mary, as you speak to our hearts, that there would be an awakening, a, a birthing take place, a recognition of our Lord and our God, who's come for us. Thank you, Lord, that the tomb was empty and that it was emptied for our sake so that we could see that you're not dead. Thank you, Lord, that as we look, there's no body there. We thank you, Lord, that that life you impart to us. In Jesus' name, amen.